0: You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial
1: Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive on topics that are underreported by the mainstream news media and demand a further look, greater background, context, and discussion. Welcome, everyone. We're glad you're with us. Today, we've got a fascinating guest for you. In just a few seconds, I'll be joined by Colonel Douglas McGregor. first i'd like to remind you that judicial Watch's mission is to promote transparency integrity and accountability in government politics and the law if that appeals to you you are in the right place so follow and rate this podcast on watch whether you found us on spotify apple podcast or any of the other platforms be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating colonel douglas mcgregor is a decorated combat veteran the author of five books a Ph.D. and a defense and foreign policy consultant. He was commissioned in the Regular Army in 1976 after a year at VMI and four years at West Point. And in 2004, Colonel McGregor retired from the U.S. Army. In 2020, the president appointed McGregor to serve as a senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. And that was a post he held right up until President Trump left office. He holds a master's degree in comparative politics and a Ph.D., and international relations from the University of Virginia. He's widely known and respected across the U.S. and across NATO, as well as other countries such as Israel, Russia, China, and Korea for his leadership in the Battle of 73 Easting, the U.S. Army's largest tank battle since World War II, and for the books that he's written, including Breaking the Phalanx, Transformation Under Fire, uh, which is really a a military force design uh, book that has profoundly influenced force development, not just here in the United States, but overseas as well, to include Israel and Korea. His uh, 2019 Transformation Under Fire was selected by Lieutenant General Aviv Kohavi, the chief of the Israeli Defense Force, as the intellectual basis for IDF transformation. That's an astounding, really an amazing accomplishment that that, uh, Colonel McGregor's work that his book turns out to be the foundational piece for the IDF. And then his fifth book, Margin of Victory, Five Battles that Changed the Face of Modern War, was published by Naval Institute Press. Uh, He taught at West Point uh, in the Department of Social Sciences. He commanded 1st Squadron, 4th Cavalry, and served as the Director of Joint Operations at Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe during the 1999 Kosovo air campaign. Uh, Colonel McGregor's concept for seizing Baghdad was uh, briefed, or was essentially forced, really I guess, in a sense, uh, on the U.S. military by Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, uh, and uh, he had an enormous influence on the occupation and the victory there. He's an expert witness and testified numerous times before Senate and House Armed Services Committee. You've seen him on television as an analyst for Fox News, CNN, BBC, and others. He also happens to be fluent in German, auskos So, Colonel McGregor, welcome to On Watch.
0: Thanks. Good to talk with you, Chris.
1: It's uh, quite a a CV, quite a resume you have, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. This podcast has been growing week after week, and uh, really by leaps and bounds. It's a great format for having a real discussion about what's going on in the world. Naturally, we're going to rely on your expertise militarily, today to talk about Ukraine. And that's, uh, obviously we're coming up on a month of, you, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, I think it's important for us to check in and get your view and your opinion of the latest developments. I think most recently, there's been some statements by the President of the United States about the conduct of the war and what's going on. And so I want to get your read. President Biden says, that Putin's back is against the wall. What, what's your impression of that kind of opening statement there?
0: Uh, it's incomprehensible. I don't see much evidence that Putin's back is against much of anything at this point.
1: <clears throat> now,
0: I, I don't know where m- many of these reports come from. They sound as though they're uh, fabricated narratives designed to uh, mask the truth, which is that uh, Putin is by no means against the wall. He's actually in control of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. We are not. And neither are the Ukrainians at this point. So I <clears throat> I have to dismiss a lot of that as essentially propaganda propaganda with a very questionable foundation and anything remotely accurate.
1: Uh, the president says that U.S. intelligence agencies have been spot on providing him accurate, timely intelligence and that they've predicted everything that's happened so far. Is that your assessment?
0: no in fact i think the president and his uh, colleagues in the white house as well as many people on the hill were really surprised when the the russians went ahead and intervened in ukraine <clears throat> they simply dismissed out of hand the possibility that uh, mr putin was serious and would do what he did i i think that has to be understood within the framework of the last sort of 15 to 20 years because putin's decision to go in was certainly no surprise to anyone that paid any attention to what's been going on in Ukraine. Ukrainians under our leadership have effectively invited Russian military intervention. And that started really in 2007 and reached a new uh, peak in 2014 with the uh, Maidan revolution that, that effectively brought Washington's friends to power. And we've been calling the tune ever since. And from, 2007 onward, uh, Mr. Putin made it clear that under no circumstances would the Russians tolerate the presence of U.S. and NATO forces in Ukraine. Uh, He warned against stationing missiles or other systems that could threaten Moscow and other major cities in Russia within minutes. He said, if this doesn't stop, if we don't see an end to this, uh, and you bring Ukraine into NATO, which he saw as uh, inevitable then I'm gonna intervene militarily and stop it, which is what he's done. Now, he has the backing of China. And I think the Chinese view this as uh, an existential matter for themselves. Uh, We've made our hostility to China very, very clear. So China has no incentive whatsoever to work with us. India has joined this group. I I think it's interesting that uh, the president and some of his uh, colleagues have pointed to the so-called Quad in Asia as a success story. Nothing could be further from the truth. India wants nothing to do with anything that involves hostility with China and certainly will not support any action against Russia with whom it has a long-standing relationship. And then you begin to go into other areas like Germany and Japan, two of the largest and most powerful economies in the world. And they both said that uh, they will support some sanctions, but they absolutely will not under any circumstances stop buying oil and gas. Then you have the Peninsular Arabs who've announced to everyone that they're going to do business with China in the Yuan currency, in other words, not dollars. And this is after our friend, uh, President Biden, has made several phone calls and been essentially told they're not talking to us. So I, I don't know what he's talking about. Biden's back against the wall. I think instead what we're looking at are two things. First of all, the inevitable fracturing of NATO along regional lines because the Italians have no interest in this want nothing to do with it. The Greeks certainly don't, neither do the Bulgarians. The French are very uncomfortable. So are the Spaniards that leaves you with the Scandinavians who like the Germans uh, want to continue to buy oil and gas, but uh, want to stand on the sidelines and carpet the Russians, but no one is interested in fighting them. And everybody wants this thing over. So I, I just don't see this uh, picture of Putin's back against the wall. I see NATO fracturing, and I see the de-dollarization potentially of the global economy coming, and that of course would be extremely detrimental to us. And we have our own problems here at home, as you know, Chris.
1: Yeah, and I'm always amazed that the the war <clears> hawks <throat> who are who are pounding the drums, uh, sort of fanning the flames on the crisis in the Ukraine. And they obviously, look, it's a horrific situation. There's you know. Uh, extraordinary violence, bloodshed, uh, cities are being uh, sort of, you know, piece by piece leveled. I always say, look, if you really are excited about what's going on in Ukraine and you think that the only way forward is for this continued effort by Zelensky uh, to to press on in, in combat against the Russians, go Google up some pictures of Grozny. And if you want Ukraine to be turned into one enormous Grozny Chechnya after the second Chechen-Russian war, if you want a lunar landscape, keep it up. I mean, that's really my take on this. Because the Russians, look go back 100 years and look at Russian military history. They're going to grind on this. They're going to push and push and grind. And eventually, I mean, it could be a horrific nightmare. It could be a bloodbath. But you're not going to stop the Russian army from occupying Ukraine.
0: Well, you've you've hit on a couple of important points. The first is that for Moscow, uh, Ukraine is an existential question for Russia. It is not an existential matter for us. Our interests in Ukraine are at best marginal. In fact, if we have an interest, it's in ending this conflict as soon as possible Correct. and getting back to normality because Ukraine and Russia together produce almost a quarter of the world's wheat and barley and other foods that are so desperately needed. We haven't even begun talking about oil and gas. So really, if anyone looks at it objectively, we want to end this. But you're right. That's not what we're doing. We're doing the opposite. We, we think that by postponing any settlement and prolonging the misery, that somehow or another, we're going to hurt Russia. And we, miraculously, along with our European allies, will emerge from this unscathed. Well, that, that's clearly not going to happen. But the other point that we don't seem to understand is that this could have been over much faster if, in fact, uh, the Russian military had been ordered to go in and behave as they did in Chechnya, but they weren't told to do that. They were told to minimize collateral damage. They were told to minimize civilian casualties. So this has taken much longer. And not every city has been leveled, and I don't think most of them will. The one place that clearly has been subjected to that is Mariupol but inside Mariupol sit 3000 of the most radical Ukrainian forces that are dedicated to the destruction of Russia and Russians everywhere. And so the the Russian military has made it very clear they will not be allowed to escape. But elsewhere, uh, quite frankly, they've moved very slowly, very deliberately because they really don't want to march into these cities. What they want is an agreement. They want an end to the fighting. But to get that, they want neutrality for Ukraine. In other words, Ukraine cannot be aligned with any bloc. They want recognition for the independence or autonomy of the Donbass, these two republics that are Russian, let them speak Russian. They want Russians in general inside Ukraine and Russians constitute a large portion of the country to be treated uh, with respect instead of being suppressed as second class citizens. And then, of course, they they want a renunciation of any claim on Crimea, which has never been part of Ukraine, ever in its history. So if you look at those things, that's what they want. They are not interested in occupying Ukraine. This was never about occupation. This was about destroying the forces in Ukraine that threatened Russia and achieving those goals that I just pointed out. No one talks about that. There's no interest in marching west of the Dnieper River. Because Putin is familiar with history. That's the heart of Ukraine. That's the old Polish Lithuanian territory, part of which became Austrian and much later on fell under Russia. The people there are not Russians. They really are Ukrainian, and Putin's not interested in that. But he wants to rid Eastern Ukraine of these forces, essentially demilitarize it and ensure that it never becomes a threat to Russia. We should support that. We can do that very easily. And pretending that somehow or another we're protecting this gleaming, shining city of liberal democracy on the Hill is absurd. I mean, everyone knows that Zelensky is running a very tight ship, to be polite. Others would say a a truly fascist state. Uh, He's banned any opposition of any kind to his dictatorship uh, of events, and he controls the military and the, the secret police and they're doing their job of punishing and killing and assassinating anybody who disagrees with him. So it's, it's not one side is a, is a perfect liberal democracy and the other side is an evil dictatorship. Both of these countries have significant difficulties with their political structures, and both of them struggle with uh, corruption. So frankly, our real interest once again is ending this, getting back to some normalcy. And by the way, the Russian troops have been told don't drive into any of the fields in eastern Ukraine. In other words, stay out of them because spring planting is upon us. They want the Ukrainians to be able to plant their crops so that they can uh, produce the food that's so vitally essential to everyone in Europe and around the world. This is not what people think it is. It's it, Of course, that's not new in American history, I guess, Chris.
1: No, Look I mean. The uh, it,
0: Spanish-American War.
1: Correct. And, and that is what you've just highlighted, uh, really is airbrushed out of news reporting. I shouldn't even call it news reporting. It's more, you know, jingoistic sort of propaganda uh, cheerleading. Uh, And I think I've, I talked to a wide swath of people from PhDs and doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs all the way down to just regular good old guys hanging out at the gas station. And uh, in my own sort of unofficial unscientific review I have people asking me all sorts of questions about why we should give a damn about what's going on in Ukraine. It isn't that they don't care that people are being killed or that, you know, the Russians are rolling into a different country that isn't theirs. They, they get it. I mean, they objective, they know that it's objectively wrong. That's bad. You know, don't uh, destroy cities and kill civilians. There isn't that level of, of uh, disbelief or skepticism, but they do have a hard time trying to understand what's in it for us. And they, they look at reporting, and because of the insanity of, you know, fake news and cancel culture and all that stuff, they really don't know what to believe anymore. They don't know whether they're getting the real story or something that's been all dressed up, you know, lipstick on the pig or airbrushed out of history. They just don't know what to believe anymore. And frankly, I don't blame them. You don't know what to believe unless you're really a student of, of uh, this type of conflict.
0: Well, the largest issue right now is the absence of very much truthful analysis and reporting on the mainstream outlets. That's an enormous problem. It's not the first time that we've seen it. Anybody who took the trouble to read uh, Noam Chomsky's great work, manufactured consent, understands what's been going on. The real question is, is this thing it culminates, and it will over the next two weeks. It will culminate in the destruction of the Ukrainian forces or their outright capture. That's well underway. But the other point is, if we do not broker a ceasefire, then I suspect they will go into Kiev, or Kiev, or whatever they want to call it this week. And uh, that's going to be tragic and unfortunate. Uh, and that will result in undesired uh, destruction. But then it will be over effectively. It will, it will reach this point where everything is an entropic. We've, we've reached that, that stage by in the next two weeks. And then the question is, are we actually going to promote this notion, which I think is catastrophic and stupid, of uh, fomenting an insurgency? Uh, I hope not, because I don't think the Europeans will go along with it at all. The Europeans want an end to this. And I think that's going to be made very clear in the ministerials. And if they don't get an end to it, and we are successful in spreading and widening this conflict, as many are talking about, I think you could see tremendous turnover in governments in Europe. You have fundamentally new people come to power over there and said, that's it. We've had it. No, no thanks, United States. We, we don't need you here. You came here in theory to protect us. Now you're putting us all at risk. I think that's, that's where we're headed to some extent as well.
1: And in perfect parallel to that is, is an alternative reality that Biden offered yesterday. He spoke to the Business Roundtable's uh, CEO uh, organization or presentation. And here's a quote that, that I'm going to read this verbatim. I think it's, it's both fascinating and also very, very disturbing. So bear with me. I won't be as incoherent, Aaron. I won't slur all the words as our president would. But I'm going to try to give this to you straight up. Quote, I think this presents us with some significant opportunities to make some real changes. You know, we are at an inflection point. I believe in the world economy, not just the world economy, in the world occurs every three or four generations. As one of my, as one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And since then, we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now's the time when things are shifting. We're going, there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world and doing it, close quote. Now, taking out the incoherent meanderings, that overall message to me is uh, alarming and creepy.
0: Well, it's creepy. He's right about the inflection point. He's just wrong about where we're headed. Uh, We're going to see a world that will be increasingly regionally divided, uh, and we're going to see the crumbling and the breakdown of all the alliance structures that we've become accustomed to. Uh, Economics is going to take over, and and we're going to see new relationships emerge between uh, states and powers that didn't exist previously. But None of this necessarily has to be bad for us, but unfortunately, we're going to regard any change that we do not dictate as inherently bad. That's the problem. If we don't control it, it must be bad. We've taken this position for a long time. So no, I think that's sheer lunacy, frankly. It sounds an awful lot like what was discussed by George Bush Sr. in 1990, 91, 92. And of course, we know where that went. It it did not come to fruition as anticipated. I think the world is going to finally wash its hands of us. They're tired of us. They're tired of being bullied. We've weaponized the financial system. We talk about this Swift system as though uh, you do business with us on our terms or you can't do business. That's not going to work over the long haul. In fact, the opposite is the case
1: that is but, i mean because because China mm-hmm. is the back door to all of this, and that that's where we're losing it.
0: Oh, absolutely. China is an enormous economy. As I think Michael uh, Faber, uh, the German uh, billionaire who lives in uh, Singapore says frequently, Americans don't understand that there are at least three, four or five versions of the EU and the United States inside China. No one understands the size, uh, the, the magnitude of this state and how difficult it is to hold together, how difficult it is to manage but it's enormous impact on the global economy. You know, we just had this thing called the regional comprehensive economic program that China developed, which amounts to a free trade treaty, if you will, uh, with every major state in Asia. I think it has 18 or 19 signatories now, including Australia. Japan has signed up for it because the Chinese have always understood that opening their markets to their neighbors, particularly Japan, is the way to avoid war. Most of the wars between the Japanese and the Chinese were fought over closed markets. The only way you could enter the Chinese market for roughly a thousand plus years was to pay tribute to the emperor. And obviously Japan had no interest in doing that. Well, that's over. And and that means that Xi and China have said, we will not demand that you live in a Sino-centric world. We will accept you as business partners. You don't need to, quote, unquote, uh, pay uh, tribute. So the Japanese, for instance, are, are looking at us, and they're looking at their relationship with China. They're looking at what's happening with Russia, and they're beginning to wonder, why are we so closely aligned with the United States? How does it help us to be closely aligned with the United States? They won't say so publicly, but privately, they're looking at a world in which they are a free agent. They will be friendly to us but they no longer want to make themselves dependent upon us, certainly not for defense. That's sort of a microcosm of what I think is happening around the world right now. And for some reason, I guess it's Washington is much like Versailles on the Potomac in the 1780s. Everybody lives in a bubble and imagines that prosperity will go on forever, that nothing will ever change, and that we can borrow as much money as we like, that interest rates don't matter. I guess you go down the list, but they're wrong. And all of these things are going to come home, so to say, and roost with us. And I don't think the current administration and its supporters are really prepared for what's headed in their direction.
1: Two two quick questions as we close in at the, at the end of our interview here. One is, how fast would a Russian cyber attack change the opinions of Versailles and the Potomac? I'll let you hit that one. But then the other one is, Uh, In the broader scheme of things, what's the message for Taiwan in all of this?
0: Let me take the second part first. There will be no invasion of Taiwan, no attack on Taiwan under any circumstances, unless we or uh, the Japanese were to put forces on Taiwan with strike systems, missiles that could reach the mainland. So unless something like that were to happen, there will be no attempt by the Chinese to conquer Taiwan. Americans don't understand there are two parties, political parties on Taiwan. One is pro-Japanese, pro-Tokyo. They happen to be in power right now. And the other is a pro-Beijing party. This is Chiang Kai-shek's old Kuomintang uh, KMT uh, party that that, uh, historically was... uh, against Beijing, but has come around to the notion that Taiwan should in fact reunify with China, obviously on terms that are mutually beneficial. People don't understand just how much money goes from Taiwan into China and vice versa, or the the level of business it's conducted. Those two parties are within a point or two of of winning or losing every election. And if the party that is pro-Beijing should win the next election, which is not impossible, and the pro-Tokyo party is out of power, you could actually see a peaceful, quote unquote, uh, reunification with uh, China. So I I think the the idea that somehow or another, Taiwan is this ripe pear about to fall into the lap of China is crazy. That doesn't even begin to address the enormous problems militarily with trying to execute such a thing. And then finally, why would the Chinese want to destroy the infrastructure, particularly the microcircuitry a production uh, base that exists in Taiwan. It, it doesn't. And the Japanese obviously don't want it to.
1: In and fact, what I keep trying plans. to tell
0: people is that no one in Asia wants a war. The only people that are talking about war in Asia are Americans. No one wants to hear that. Now, that's that's the second question. <clears throat> I'm not sure about the first one. Could you repeat that?
1: Yeah, it was the the likelihood of of the mood and all the language changing dramatically in Washington, with uh, with one pointed cyber attack from the Russians.
0: You know, I, I that's hard to know. The Russians could do enormous damage to us if they wanted to, and they may yet do it. Uh, the Russians are very good at esca- escalating horizontally, as opposed to vertically. Uh, you know, I I don't know what would wise up washington other than bankruptcy to be blunt Uh, i think that's the one thing that will have an impact but it becomes clear that we've reached uh, the point of no return on debt financed consumption and i think we're close but otherwise uh you know the russians do not want an escalation to the nuclear level obviously they do not want a war with the west they don't maintain forces large enough to attack the west they want to do business with the west We've decided to demonize Russia and make it impossible for them to operate in any space where we are also present. I think this is disastrous, and I don't think anyone in Ukraine will benefit from this approach.
1: Colonel Douglas McGregor, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Your insights are fascinating; they are uh, refreshing from sort of the uh, the propagandistic drumbeat uh, on both sides or on the on the the Russian-sponsored side, and then the others in Washington who are uh, in love with the idea of perpetuating war in Ukraine. We thank you for your honesty, for your exceptional service to this country, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.
0: Okay, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it.
1: I'm Chris Farrell, On Watch.
0: Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.